0: I'm Matthew McCabe. Welcome to Miracle Voices. Each episode, we will be delving into stories of forgiveness, healing, and transformation that have come about from integrating the principles of the book, A Course in Miracles. If you want to learn more about A Course in Miracles, visit www acim.org. If you'd like to visit the Miracle Voices site, please go to www.miraclevoices.org. If you feel inspired to make a love offering, please visit us at miraclevoices.org forward slash donate. All donations go to support the work of the Foundation for Inner Peace, the publisher of A Course in Miracles. Now here's your program. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Miracle Voices. This is your co-host, Matt McCabe, here with my co-host, Tam Morgan. Tam, how are you doing today?
1: Very well today. Another day, another
0: podcast. Yay. Yay. And our guest today is Adam Rizvi. Adam, welcome to Miracle Voices.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Matt, and thank you, Tam. Lovely to hear both of your voices and to be here.
0: Well, Adam, where are you sitting in the world today?
2: Today, I am in Redlands, California.
0: Okay. And that's in Southern California. And where where do you live normally?
2: I live in Temecula, California, also in Southern California. But this little apartment uh, my fiance and I have in Redlands helps us avoid the long commute. And it's sort of a work apartment, if you will. Yeah.
0: And yeah, Temecula, Temecula is kind of... Go oh, ahead, sorry.
2: Okay.
1: I was just going to say Temecula is kind of like the Mecca of the course world in Ken Wapnick's uh, world, because that's where FASM, his organization, um, was based.
2: Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, not, uh, not. I did not intend necessarily to to move there. When I made the decision to come to California, I actually had two jobs, one in San Diego and one in L.A., And for all intents and purposes, those jobs were going to be there forever. So I said, okay, I need to minimize the commute. What is the exact middle? And there was a bunch of places at Menifee, Temecula. I was um, in the decision space, and uh, I thought, okay, well, let's start looking at houses. And I found a whole bunch. But incidentally, there was a lot of new construction in Temecula, and the prices were great. So I said, well, wouldn't you know? That's How interesting is that? And uh, I, just, I just felt like it was a sign. So I, we, I made the decision and, and pulled the trigger and got a house in Temecula. Yeah, that's like uh, wine country, right? Is that what it is? Yeah. Their, their slogan, and it's on some of the um, uh, billboards, says, live life uh, glass full.
0: <laughs> that's hey. good that's a good uh good marketing campaign i usually think yeah. people usually think of sonoma in northern california but southern california has its own wine country pretty soon every place is going to be wine country that's but you, true yeah so it's a cool off at night there uh is that the, kind of the growing environment it needs to be a little cooler at night
2: yeah there's there's um sort of a, a marine layer i guess people call it i'm still learning about the environments here in, in socal but at nighttime um uh some ocean ocean breeze comes in from uh from oceanside area and moves all the way inland, uh all the way to about Temecula, and that helps with the grapes, I think.
0: Oh, nice. Nice. Well, so so great to have you here, Adam. Um, why don't we start with how A Course in Miracles came into your life?
2: Sure. Um it it was probably a staged approach. Uh I think um uh, I, I think the Holy Spirit felt I needed to to have a little exposure before blasting me all at once with the truth. So back in 2012, I I had just finished med school and was actually traveling to interview for for residency in a in a neurology residency program. Uh, and I remember I went to Vermont, um, and in the uh, in the capital, or I forget which city I was at, at the time. Um, but I Burlington? was in de- yeah, it was Burlington, that's right, that's right. If you recall Burlington, or have you been, Matt? I've been, yes. I have to. Yeah. Oh, Tam, great, okay. So I if you go downtown, there are a couple of streets that have cobblestone. Yeah, church street. And I think you're right. Yeah. Oh Matt. Yeah. Matt, you're you're nailing this. This is great. <laughs> yeah. Whew. There's there's one, one of the streets has, um, an ice cream store and halfway down the street is a bookstore and I don't recall the name, but their, their logo has a crow. Does that ring a bell?
0: Doesn't ring a bell. No.
2: Okay. I thought you were going to go two, for two I, Yeah. it's side. like a trifecta here. Yeah. yeah really. <laughs> three three. So, um, anyway, I, I'm a huge book nerd and, um, even if I don't buy books, I'll just, I just want to be in the store. I want to smell the books. I want to touch them, feel them. I love it. I love books. So I went in and um, was immediately drawn to a large blue book. And uh, I think they had the the self-transformation section right up front. So it was, it was hard to miss. So I went there. I, I flipped through it. Um, the language was very dense. And I remember telling myself, I'm going to read this, but not now. Uh, and so I, I put it back in the shelf, only to get a, um, I think a, an, a Kindle version of it later on. Um, but never, it wasn't a deep dive. And then fast forward to 2019, actually, um, my father passed away, and it was a very challenging series of circumstances for me, and I. I was flipping through his phone, uh, as you do after someone you love dies, just to see what they were watching and and what who they were texting, and just some way to connect with with him. And I now let me give you some background. My father, I was raised in an interesting household. My dad is a was a Muslim, raised in in Karachi, Pakistan. Um, very very religious man. Open-minded, liberal, because he married my mother, who was raised Catholic, and so I grew up in a very interesting household. We had um, uh, we'd go to mosque uh, on Fridays and mass on Sundays. Uh, for the most part, we'd we'd miss some every now and then, but the idea was okay. Let's expose our children to both religious cultures, uh, and then they can make their decision uh, later on. My dad became much more um, religious. And really got upset when he saw me reading books that were anything but Islamic and to the point where he would throw them away. And so I would have to – when I was a kid, I used to hide books um, and and keep them in the corner under the bed so he didn't see them that were non-Islamic. Uh, um, anyway, fast forward. I'm looking through his YouTube um, search history, and over and over and over again – there's this name that keeps popping up, Kenneth Wapnick. And I was like, who is this? Who is this Kenneth Wapnick guy? And so I start watching these videos, and he's talking about a course in miracles. I'm like, oh, I know what that is. I read that briefly a couple years ago. And and then I start reading it and I realize, wait a minute, this isn't Islamic stuff. This isn't Muslim stuff. What what was he watching? And so I remember having a, a long conversation with my mother and we end up going back into A Course in Miracles. And in this time, I when I started diving back into it, I, I was drawn to Gary Renard's book, Disappearance of the Universe. And I absolutely inhaled everything he wrote all at once, multiple times over, and then dived in earnest um, into the workbook at around the same time, and so shortly after he died, around that time I started the workbook and and went the full year year and a half it took me I think, uh, and then read the book itself, the text and and all the pamphlets in earnest afterwards. And I I I can't tell you the clarity it brought me more than anything I've ever ever come across. And one other tidbit tidbit you should know about me. Prior to coming across the course seriously in 2019, I actually um, majored in comparative religion, and my my focus and my study was on Vedanta. And so I was a student of Vedanta um, fully up until then, which is interesting. I, I went from Catholicism and, and Islam and then realized, no, Vedanta is where it's at. That That non-duality is the nature of reality. And and then I come across a course and uh remember reading something that Bill Thetford had said. Oh, well, ACIM is essentially the Christian Vedanta. And 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 I, I liked it because it really brought home everything I had experienced as a child, teenager, young adult, religiously and psychologically, and put it in this beautiful package that felt like it was just for me, which I'm sure other people have felt as well.
0: Wow, it's lovely. Yeah. That that path with your father, then you're like, hey, wait a second. Here, uh, he was he was open to this, um, but he just couldn't articulate it. Do you think he had some sort of block? Of, hey. Yeah, right. <laughs> he had some yeah. block where it's like, hey, I wasn't raised this way. Maybe there's some shame to talking about it openly.
2: I think you're right. I I can only imagine as a father, you want your child to. To be raised the right way, you don't want them to stray from the path. You know that he would say that. You know, don't don't go off the path. And for him, it was it was the path was Islam, uh, which you know the the root of the word means to to surrender, surrender to, to the divine. Which I, I can see that there's um there's a root to that 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 I resonate with. Uh, but I feel maybe he he didn't want me to be confused with all these other things. I think he was just exploring it himself. Uh, but it ended up being perfect for me because it it triggered this wonderful journey.
1: Yeah. Um. Also, your father married your mother, <laughs> and yeah. that's a union unto itself. And yes. in that union, his gravitating to a course in miracles, which, as he said, Bill said, you know, was the Christian Vedanta that actually um, married some of his own belief systems together. Um, it, you know, he perhaps didn't want to talk about it out loud. And there are a lot of closeted course students who (laughs) feel very alone in their interest in it. Um, less so now that there's online, uh, but, but the, there was that, um, I, I can, you know, it, it really seems like he'd already married something. You're right brought that together. Uh, and he wanted, as you said, probably he wanted you to be clear. Um and unfaltering, it's funny that you use the word surrender. Um, you know, that that um Islam is does it the it actually means surrender?
2: Yes, yeah. Surrender it's, to the path and Islam yeah.
1: is the one one of the one words that I had to learn in a funny way is not written even once in the course
2: how and interesting
1: it it really interesting cuz one week we finally got our search engine going and i was showing someone and i was so excited about it and i said okay for instance we can look up the word surrender and see how many times it's in the course and it it said not one and it was like no it must be broken <laughs> it must be broken and and then it was a learning to myself that it says release
0: a lot yeah. but
1: yeah. not surrender which implies uh, a little bit different meaning.
0: Now, um, what do you think that reason is there, Tam? Because s- surrender makes it real.
1: Surrender is, this is my read, okay? Surrender is a little subservient. And okay. releasing is letting go. It's just letting go. Whereas surrender almost seems like you have to give something up that's, um, that's difficult to give up. Whereas the release is like you just think of a tight fist and people going, "I can't let go, I can't let go," but then you show them really it's just this: you open the fingers, yeah. and it's it's an intuitive feel that I have for it that what the difference is between the two, but we think of i mean I think of surrender Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, written by the Witch across the <laughs> sky um and it's it's a different. That's why I say subservient. Um, it, it's just, a, there's a different meaning to
2: it. Yeah, and I think um, Islam- I also look-
1: wanted to say, just in the background here, that I had a feeling, and I went and looked it up, I had a feeling that the bookstore you're talking about was Crow Bookstore, and I think it is, because it's on Church Street in, in Brattleboro. Oh, there we go. Yeah. yeah. It was it. like, oh, yeah. Crow, yeah, I kind of remember there was either Raven or Crow Bookstore there, so-
2: yeah, but I think I think you're right. And um, just a brief note, uh, the history of Islam is very war torn. And so I think the the languaging comes from all the, you know, the history of all the battles. And so when a when a when one side wins, the other has to surrender. Right. And so I think the only way to help people at that time understand um, or or relate to the, the religious teachings was to use that kind of language like the, they use the word jihad, like a holy war. Right. So a lot of the metaphors are, are based on battles and wars, which in a sense um, is making it real. There is no battle. There is no fight. There is no war. Right. Right. So I, I think you guys were on it.
0: Yeah. I also heard someone say that uh, in Aramaic, mm-hmm. the words Jesus was saying, don't know if this is true or not. So I, this is speculation in Aramaic, it um, salvation. Uh, was close to the word for unbuckle or like like unbuckling yourself from something that's not there. It's like like, like unhandcuffing yourself. So yeah. that would make sense more to yeah. the release.
1: Yeah. Release, yeah.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's, yeah, nuances here kind of coming up. It is interesting. Um, Adam, would love to hear your forgiveness story.
2: Sure, yeah. Thank you so much. I I was thinking a lot about this. It's this probably a, one of the harder questions I've had to come up in, with an answer. I think the one that I thought of that kept coming up over and over again was this big transition that I made recently. Um, in the midst of the pandemic, I was in Tucson, Arizona, and we were doing, uh, so. so a bit of context about being an ICU doctor. Um we work 12 hour days. I get up um have to be at the hospital at 6 a.m. Um, which means I have to get there before six, usually five thirty to get sign out from the night doctor. And we go till six p.m., but often stay later because of let's say a crashing patient arrives at uh, you know, five forty five p.m. I obviously can't leave. I have to stay. And we had a lot of those during the pandemic and so it would easily become 13 14 hour days and people were so sick and we we got um inundated by not only the patients but um uh just staff as well nursing and physicians who themselves got sticks sick so we were we were short staffed i was pulling normally i do 14 shifts a month seven on seven off um uh, but I was doing 21, 23, sometimes 26 shifts a month. Uh that's that's working nearly every day straight. I remember being so deeply exhausted that it, it went to the core. And it was just months after months. And the sleep deprivation, the the emotional exhaustion, I just felt like I don't this is not what I want to do anymore. Uh and so I made a decision. I don't want to be always working at the tail end of life. I love, uh, this may sound morbid, but I love working with death. I do. I feel drawn to it. I feel like there is such beauty in, in that moment and being able to support a family and a patient make their transition is probably one of the biggest gifts I've been given as a physician. And I still see that as a major part of my purpose here. Uh, but that said, I felt like I wanted to start working with people to thrive, to live healthy lives, um, and and also to, I wanted to talk about spirituality. I wanted to talk about non-duality and a course and helping people have the spiritual context for the symptoms they're going through and the challenges that they're going through on a physical level or or other levels as well. And so I I made a decision and I said, okay, that's it. I'm going to move and I'm going to start a clinic. When I, when I was younger, my my father always wanted to have family clinic, but it, we never really materialized that. Although in the last year or two, he was ardently trying to make that happen, but uh, unfortunately he passed away, had a heart attack before he could make that a reality. So I Be reached out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, no, sorry. My father uh, was a a, a businessman. Uh, he he ran several restaurants. He owned a couple uh, several Denny's, actually, if you've heard of that.
0: Yeah. Chain. Sure.
2: Yeah, my mom is a doctor, uh, but he was he's he was always the business guy. So he wanted to run the the clinic. Um and he already knew how he was gonna do it. You know, of course he had the business mind. Um so we decided, my sister, my mother, and I, we decided let's make that a reality. And my mother was already in Southern California at the time. My sister and I, we actually went to Southern California and every time we crossed the state line, we just felt this huge sense of joy. Her and I both grew up in Southern California, so it was sort of a coming home and and we just felt so drawn. We said, "Okay, we're being guided here. We have to go to Southern California." So, both her and I um put in our notices I reached out, found a couple of hospitals that needed um, per diem work, which just means you work a couple of days, but there's no W-2 contract, if, if you know what that means. And I said, it doesn't matter, uh, I'll I'll go for it. And um, that hospital was in LA and San Diego, those hospitals. And so hence the decision to get a, a home in Temecula. But the the income wasn't solid, and they could have ended that contract at any moment. I didn't have a solid job, but I said I it doesn't matter, I'm going to go for it. I remember the moment writing that email to my employer in Tucson and telling them that I, you know, I'm putting in my my notice. I got I got filled with such an intense fear. Mm-hmm. My stable income that the only thing I had known because this is my only job after fellowship training um is now going away. I'm moving to another state where I don't have guaranteed income. And and I bought a house um and now I have a mortgage to pay that I don't um I I, I don't know if I'm going to have the money coming in and I mind you I still have six figure student loan debt to pay off. Uh but you know, I I clicked send. Um, and briefly before I did that, I just closed my eyes and, and, um, connected with the Holy spirit. And I still felt the draw and the push to, to go to California. And I shared with you the story of having that house in Temecula, everything felt like it was lining up nicely. And I was getting these little symbols to to guide me to go for it. But that fear was so intense and it wouldn't let up in the days after I sent that email and all the paperwork started to come in and I had to. Change my 401k. The fear of, oh my gosh, is this? Did I just throw <laughs> away my life? Uh, and then the clinic, we actually hadn't even launched yet. We hadn't even incorporated nothing. We were starting to have conversations and then uh, um, realizing, like, no, this is not just like a couple thousand dollars. This is hundreds of thousands of dollars to launch a clinic. And I don't know, maybe it was just a naive, naivete of, uh, you know, trying to be an entrepreneur, and I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, I think I made a mistake. I- I'm, we're, not, I'm not ready. I don't, I didn't pay off my loans. I don't have the financial stability to to start a business like this. And uh, and then I started thinking, well, c- can I ask my employer to take me back? Is, uh, but then I I kind of inquired in the grapevine, and it turns out they already hired someone to replace me. And I was like, oh darn it, I'm stuck. And and it it was this terrible feeling of. One foot in one world, one foot in the other, and being torn, and and all the fear. And I remember this is one of a, I guess you could call it a slow burn, uh, but really it took me like three to five months of daily work before going to bed to deal with that anxiety and the fear, and and it was um, it was a constant going within, and remembering not to make real and remembering that I'm not here in California or Arizona stuck between a job. I'm safe at home in heaven. There is nothing to be afraid of. Uh, Mm -hmm. and I've never, I've never left. And so there's, there's no need for fear or worry. Uh, I'm in a dream, and I'm the dreamer of that dream. And so I would, I would say these things, and some days it would be a little bit of a, a different approach with the mind in terms of reminding myself that I've never left. Um, and and that the world that I'm seeing is a projection of that unconscious guilt. Um, and bit by bit the fear dissipated. I think in in a certain sense, I've had moments that I've had forgiveness opportunities that were one and one and done, you know, like really intense, you forgive and then boom, it's done that same day. Uh, but I wanted to share this one because it really took um, day in, day out, a dedicated commitment to releasing that anxiety and that fear. And sure enough, over time, uh, in Temecula, I I found someone that did our marketing, someone who could incorporate us. Uh, it, things just fell into our lap, and now we have a beautiful business. We uh, tailored towards patients with neurological conditions um, in in San Diego, and actually um, next year we're going to be launching a satellite clinic uh, in Temecula itself as well. So things are things are moving, and it feels so good to be able to talk to patients not only about the disease, but also to help them give uh get the the larger context of they are actually on a spiritual journey of remembering who they really are. And all of this, all the symptoms they're going through, everything that their body is experiencing, these are all just symbols, symbols at the level of the mind, opportunities for them to remember what's really going on. And depending on where they're at, we work with them on different levels, but it's a lot of fun now, and I'm still doing ICU work, but the transition has been made, and I, I do both right now.
1: Mm. That's the story. That's wonderful. You know, it it ties into me your own training and your own love in that space um, where death comes, um, or mm-hmm. or as we perceive death. Uh, I, I love that space myself. I don't find it morbid. I, I've been called a death doula because I show up to help people with that transition. Wow. And it's what the fear. it feels to me like the fear that you were experiencing between, as you call it, these two worlds for you, it was, you know, Tucson and Temecula um, is the fear that people who don't know their own truth um, experience going into death. It's these, that place between two worlds and the unknown and where am I going? So to be able to offer that support um, even brings your comparative religion, you know, back to your expertise now um, to, to understand what that fear is. It doesn't have to just be life and death. It can just be a transition in a move. And that five-month practice period of how do I shift this and make this different um, and see this differently really goes beautifully with your own ability to help
2: people. Wow, Tim, I I hadn't seen it in that light, but that's so uh, spot on. I think it was a death in a in a sense, and. Uh, it's about yeah. That's so good. It's it's about realizing it, it's a transition from from life to life, if you will. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: And you know, there I, I've heard people say quite a lot, and I'm I'm interested to pull it apart. You know, it's it's not brave if you're not afraid. Mm-hmm. and it's an interesting statement because do we find as course students that to be true now sometimes fear can bring up your greatest learning and it is how we deal with it do you go right into it and 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 that's you were indeed brave to trust even amidst all that fear that what you were doing you were going to continue doing i mean the door got shut which was a beautiful spirit plan someone was hired so you couldn't go back <laughs>
2: Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But that said, too, you know, there was bravery amidst that to keep going and to to listen in the first place. And sometimes we do experience fear when we hear that voice that's guiding us, that our ego saying, no, what do you mean? It first sounds attractive and then all of what seems to be the apparent realistic things like your student debt and all of that come to haunt. But to stay with that steady course, and I mean that literally and figuratively, um, in this case, um, really shown through in in the story. So, thank you so much for sharing.
0: Yeah, yeah. You two are both very comfortable with death. I'm still kind of maybe more like an average listener. That's like, hey, I'm not super comfortable with it, but want to be more comfortable with it. And maybe you could talk a little bit, Adam, about you know. What you see in the death process, some things that could make listeners feel hopeful, but also um how maybe before the death process, too, um, people that recover from whatever their perceived illness is from a change of mind, do you see that often?
2: That's a good question, matt. actually, i'd be I'd be curious, um maybe we can discuss this deeper from one death doula to another, Tam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I think one of the, um, in my experience in the ICU, there comes a moment where um, I you get a sense that the patient is going to make their transition. Uh, very often, they're already so, so sick with multi-organ failure. They're intubated on a ventilator. There's multiple drips running. And, um, you know, you see or, or you can sense, I can sense that the patient is has made their decision. Uh, and then it's less about actively doing something for the patient. Of course, there's something that I'll share there first too, but it's it's more about being with the family and um, talking with the, the daughter, the son, the mother, father, whoever it is, and getting a sense of where they're at in, in their acceptance, um, giving them some tools to understand what's happening, prepare them emotionally, and I found now, I think I, so I graduated um, fellowship in 2018. Uh, So it's, I'm still young in my career, but in the past couple of years, I've found that silence is far more powerful than, than words. I'll often say a couple of things just to understand where they're coming from hear the kind of language that they use, the words that they use. So I can reflect that back to them. Uh, And then I'll just sit with them. And acknowledge, yeah, this is hard, this is painful, and let the tears fall, and I just I just keep my mouth shut, I just close. I think a lot of doctors want to bulldozer over the silence because it's uncomfortable, but I embrace it, and I just sit there with them, and I let them cry, or I let them we, we're all we we all just sit in silence, and in those moments, I feel a lot of healing happens, a lot of acceptance, a lot of honoring and then when the time comes to either um, you know, remove the breathing tube or or the heart stops on its own. Uh, I, I feel like there is more of a willingness to truly honor the patient instead of yelling or fighting or blaming. Um, I, you know, I see that too sometimes when when the family members aren't ready. In terms of the patient, um, I would love to hear what you've experienced, Tam. Uh, but what I start to do is I start to, um, when I'm no longer able to communicate with them, and they, let's say they have that breathing tube in or something, uh, then I connect at the level of the mind, and, um, and I see them for who they are. And I think practically how it shows up in my mind is I I see them as a, as a ball of light. Initially, amidst many many other balls of light in in my mind's eye. And I see this great expanse of pure love and light. You can call it heaven, God, source. And I just see them dissolve into, into that. And I remind myself that's where they've always been. And that's where I've always been. We've all always been there and we've never left. And there's only one of us here. And I remind myself that as I see them, I see myself and so if I know that they have never left heaven, that they are one with source, with God, uh, then I am too. And in that is, I think, the secret of every healer is realizing that as you see your patient, you begin to heal yourself and your your own mind. And it's particularly fun for me, it's become a little bit of a game now, to look past the intensity of the the blood and the gore because I see a lot of trauma come in, um, and you know the the torn apart limbs and and you know the all all of that. I don't want to be too graphic, but uh, just to get past all of that and and remember and see, no, there there's they are not the body here. This is just symbols, uh, projections on a grand screen, uh, coming from within. But who they really are is. Uh, that one light um and and source and every time i do that with that patient i can i f- i feel the love for them and 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 i and it feels like on a very deep level um i'm i'm communicating with them and letting them know that they're they're free they're free to make their transition and and i feel it at the level of my heart and i've i've had really interesting experiences of of seeing things in the room and and feeling things but um of course all of that is just symbolic of of really the the oneness that's in in the mind Mm,
1: that's so beautiful
2: yeah i mean and and you're talking about
1: a perceived i'm not saying this right let me go back for a moment the chorus has a line in lesson 152 that says and no one dies without his own consent and that can be seen in a very controversial way, because you see a child die, you see someone torn to smithereens, as you say, um, and the body ravaged. And this notion that no one dies without his own consent is really um, intriguing in that. And I do share that, that perception. I really do. I feel like even if it looks, this was such an untimely death, um mm. is something in our soul's journey that knows when it's time and what you're speaking of i think my specifically um my mother gave me the greatest lesson in in that there she was and she was having a heart attack she was her body she was in so much pain and she was screaming and one funny part was that you know, as I've said before, she had me make a business call and said, just mute me when I'm screaming and I'll touch you when I can talk. And she, I would mute her and she'd <laughs> yes. be screaming and the other person was on the line and then she touched me. And she went, well, I'll tell you. Da-da-da-da. And then she touched me again. And, go, ah! and then oh, my the God. end of the day, she, I, when she was screaming in pain, I'm such an empath and I was holding her and my body was wincing. And she looked at me and she saw it and she said, stop. And I said, what? And she said, my body knows it is my time now. And it is the only thing that can kick me out. I would never leave you this way. And I'm not going to leave you and know that my body is doing a service for me because it's time to kick me out. So pay no attention to my screaming don't be mad at my body be with me and thank it for doing its beautiful job because this is my time and I've never been more at peace in my life and she was that conscious so when she started to scream again or I would I started to applaud her body and and cheer it on and say you go thank you mom's body thank you for bringing her to this beautiful age of 90. Thank you for doing what you've done and for her and taking the hits um, in the world of form for her and what a wonderful body. And I just started kissing it and loving it and cheering on that transition. And that shifted me, I think almost probably, although I never like to say always or never, although I just said it um, to, I don't think I'll ever see someone again in that kind of state of suffering at death and feel um, contracted like I did. Wow. The job is being done. Let go of the story.
2: Wow! Wow. Tam, I think you just highlighted something so important, and that's the relationship with the body. I think it's easy to, as a student, um, to minimize, dismiss um, the, the the physicality or the body, even bypass it altogether. Um, but what you just demonstrated and, and what your mother demonstrated was: no, when you really know who you are, then what ends up happening is there's a sense of gratitude to the body. There's a sense of uh, honoring and and compassion for the for the whole for the whole event, the whole dying process. It, it's wonderful.
1: And my mother actually. Um, was so interested. She was such an intellectual and loved knowledge. And she was so interested in the process of what she was going through in human form upon her exiting um, that she went to, at age 89, to a therapist. And she chose a therapist who knew about A Course in Miracles, but wasn't a course student because she didn't want course speak. She wanted to really. Hear what was going on, and the first thing that this therapist said to her was, "You're grieving." And my mother said, "No, no, I know all about the stages of death. I was friends with Elizabeth Kubler Ross, and I, you know, I'm I'm not grieving. I know who I am for real, and this is my, you know, this is my path. I'm just, I do feel lonely in it because that seems to be what's accompanying a sense of loneliness because I'm doing it by myself." even though there are others supporting me in it. And and the therapist said to her, oh, so you think you're not going through any grieving? She said, no, no, I've lived a fabulous life. And the therapist said, how do you feel about leaving your daughter and grandson? And my mother burst into tears. (laughs) Oh, Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the therapist burst out, okay, so you don't care about leaving your body. You don't get, no, no, no. Anyway, so, and she she was, you know, she was absolutely blown away because she thought she wasn't grieving anything. She was fine leaving her body. She'd had a full life. Everything was fine. And then she was touched on that part of the human experience in form, in the world of form, that she spiritually bypassed and didn't even pay attention to. And she was in grieving for that. And so she consciously wanted to work through that through course terminology of her own, but needed identified without um, without you know the bypassing directly into the oneness of the course. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting experience for her. And it was a it was just a great learning that here we do have that compassion, as you mentioned, um, Adam. For the physical experience while we are in it amidst our awareness of oneness and to to move through it and understand it's a dream, but also in it, one aspect, honor what parts are going to bite you in the butt that you don't realize and don't see so that you can keep releasing, keep clearing. Yeah. Very well Fantastic. said. Fantastic,
2: yeah. 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 Very well said.
1: I think I said it better during the 30 seconds that I was off, but that's okay. (laughs) Part of my human experience.
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. This is, oh, Tam, you mentioned that term spiritual bypassing for people that aren't familiar. Can you just give an overview of what you mean by that?
1: What I mean, spiritual bypassing is... When As as when the, the best example is Bill Thetford's calling someone a bliss ninny because they're saying, I'm happy all the time. And then you feel the rage under it all, um, <laughs> but they're not connecting to it to move through it or to release it. And so you override what you're actually feeling to go straight to a mental construct of practicing the course without actually imbuing the love for the release of the the guilt. And the projections of guilt that we live in and without acknowledging that as part of it, um, it's, it's hard or harder to move it through. I'm not saying it can never happen, but we we to partner in one way, not with the world of form, but to acknowledge what we've been holding so it can be released instead of to override it completely and pretend it doesn't exist. So my mother was not realizing she wasn't grieving, and when she got that, then she could work on it and let it go.
0: Mm, that's great. Yeah, that's a tough thing to to think about. It's like uh, what the course is not denying that we have the experience, just that the experience isn't real. So yes, it's holding those two things in mind.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how much time we have, but I wanted to share a, a very quick story um, while I was hiking that as um, It's sort of related to what we're describing here. Um, You know, I I learned that I don't have to worry about forgiving the lack of world peace or forgiving uh, the state of affairs globally. I just need to forgive what's right in front of my face. I just need to forgive what I'm going through and the emotions that I'm feeling in any given moment not bypass that and and you know think about something larger that isn't really relevant to me and to that end um i was hiking once in tucson actually uh and this was in winter where the sun sets quickly and i went far out into into the wilderness there's uh, an area right above the city um uh, near mount lemon uh, called Catalina State Park. I went pretty far into it, and I noticed the sun was setting. And I just I turned back too late, because um, by the time I started to make my way back, the sun had set completely, and it was pitch black. And it was one of those new moon nights where I didn't have the benefit of of the of the moonlight. It really was very very dark. Um, and I was miles away from the parking lot, and so obviously there was – I started to get a, a, a f- afraid. Uh, I could hear um, coyotes howling in the background. Um, I hear heard rustling in, in the bushes, didn't know what it was. Um, now, I had – I wasn't exactly prepared because this was supposed to be a short day hike, which I learned later on is most of the trouble with hikers are are those who are not prepared and do short day hikes – so needless to say, I'm, I don't do that anymore, but I, I only had my phone on me and it, it cast a glow. When I turned on the, the, the light, it, it cast a glow and I didn't want to burn the battery. Cause I was low. I could only see a foot in front of me if that, but I could make out barely the edges of the, of the path um, a little bit, a couple inches to my left, a couple inches to my right where some rocks were that outlined the path. And I knew I was facing the parking lot because I had turned around before the sun set. Uh, And so that was the direction I was to go. But I literally could only see a few inches in front of me. And it dawned on me, I I don't really need to know the full trail. I don't need to know all the twists and turns and everything. I I only need to know where to put my foot next. That next step, where's that next step going to go? And I only need to see the, you know, the six inches right in front of me. I take that step and great. Now where's the next step going to go? And I did that. And it took me a while. It took me uh, a little over an hour in near pitch black. Um, and I finally made it back to the parking lot. Uh, it was intense experience, needless to say, cause I was hyper vigilant and aware of all those sounds around me. Um, but it, it's a lesson that I've held on to because now when I, go through challenges in life where I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what I'm supposed to do next or how things are going to unfold. But I remind myself, just focus on where that next foot is going to go and, and just focus on forgiving what's right in front of you. And then everything else will unfold. I Do not have to worry about where to, what to say or what to do, right? Mm -hmm. I just need to know where that next step is going to go. And it's a deep sense of trust. And that's, you know, one of those qualities for the teachers of god but i i i wanted to share that with you because as we forgive it's it's about what's right in front of your face that matters
1: right yeah or or what bites you in the butt <laughs> you not
2: yeah exactly but
1: but also with that um you know there's another piece that we often forget and that is to ask for help so for instance, I was in Burning Man with my partner, and we were out in a complete sandstorm where, again, you couldn't see the step in front of you even. there, was, We had no idea if someone was going to run into us on their bike. We didn't know where we were. And it was like, I, I have an innate trust. I have a horrible sense of direction. Like in the world of geography, internally, I have a good rudder. But this was geography. I didn't have a clue where I was. And and um, my partner was looking for signposts here and there. But what happened was at one point, I felt complete trust, but I turned to him and I said, we really could use a hand here. And within seconds, there was a feeling, it was like, help, anyone, anyone help? Mm. And there, it was such a perfect kind of, burning man story where a had to have been 40 foot hand came on wheels with a whole car full. Like it was an art car full of people. They showed up right in front of us and gave us water and pointed us in a direction. <laughs> and huh. it was so literal, you know, like help. Can we have a hand? Help, help, a hand. it was this enormous <laughs> Buddha hand. It was the, it was an art car made in the form of the Buddha open palm. And so to remember, there is implicit trust that we will be told, but also we can ask for help if at any given moment.
2: So true. So true. And such a key teaching. Thank you, Tim. That's really always ask first. That's really important.
1: Yeah. So um, now we come.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Adam, I was going to ask you, what do you do when you get caught in that ego storm and everything seems so real and painful and emotional? And it's like, I want to throw this book away and it's their fault. Um, All those things come up and it just doesn't feel like you can get back on track. Is there anything to do that practically that helps you?
2: That's that's a great question. Um, For me, one thing that I've noticed is this is this is me understanding my, my physiology. Uh, I need to break this fight or flight or freeze response. So what I do is I, I stop and I take a really deep breath and I, a nice, slow, deep breath. And, um, what that does is it settles everything down, settles my nervous system. And I notice that my mind, when I'm relaxed and calm, it is way easier for me to to, to begin the forgiveness process. So I, I stop, I take a deep breath and then I, for me, I, I begin the work. That's sort of how I, I call it, um, of remembering. And I, I am curious, uh, both you and, and Tam, um, I find that for some forgiveness opportunities, there are certain phrases or certain perspectives from a course that strike at the core of it and help release the guilt or fear associated with what's coming up. Um, for example, it, uh, I, if I have, um, if I have a challenging coworker, then it could be, uh, me reminding myself that telling myself to them in their mind or in my mind about them, you are spirit whole and perfect. Um, Uh, all is forgiven and released. Uh, And I'll just, I'll just say that. I think it's one of Gary Bernard's phrases that helps me see them for who they are. Um, They are the Holy Spirit. They are, they are one with God. Um, Whereas a different situation, like I I shared with not knowing where to go and the fear of losing my job um, for me, reminding myself that I'm safe at home in heaven, and I've never left that, uh, memory, that reminder totally releases all the anxiety in me. And, and I feel um, held and I feel safe. So I feel it depends on the situation, but I essentially, I give myself truth reminders um, tailored to the situation that bring me back into that space of remembering. This is just a dream uh, projections of the unconscious guilt uh, in my mind that there is no world that's the central thought this course attempts to treat, teach right lesson 132 i remind myself these things and eventually no matter how i initially approached it i come back to the 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 memory the the reminder that uh, i am at home with god and i've never left and and i accept the atonement which is that We've never separated in the first place. I, no matter what the approach is, I bring myself back to that central core teaching, and 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 then I release it all over to to the Holy Spirit, and I I, I give the whole thing, and I don't attempt to solve it. I don't attempt to to control the situation. I give everything over, and that total release at the end uh, is like the cherry on top. And then I usually feel a sense of release uh, at the end of all of that.
1: Do you choose the statement consciously or does one come to you? Oh, wow. Yeah. I ask you, like, sometimes I go through something and I have this with the course where a statement will come to me, but also with music, I will be struggling over something and I I will wake up in the morning with a song in my head and it's the exact message I need. I, it's, I, it, it's laughable. It's like I live in a musical where suddenly the soundtrack will be in the back of of my mind for what I'm engaging, and when I listen to it, I realize, oh, that's the message. Um, so,
2: so which is it for you, or is it a combination? That's a really good question, Damn, I, I think, I think it actually comes to me. I didn't I didn't realize it until you mm-hmm. brought that up. But it's sort of like I think about the situation and. And, and, and a particular phrase from the course will just float in. And uh, it seems like I'm the one thinking it, but really now that you mention it, it's, it's uh, that still small voice that's just reminding me the right way to look at it, the correct perception.
1: <laughs> that was my sense.
0: <laughs> that's great. I always say uh, I don't know what anything including this means, and so I do not know how to respond to it, and I will not use my own past learning as the light to guide me now kind of break out like I have any sense. I have no sense of what to do here. And the, the fact that I think I might is only going to hold me back.
2: That's great. Wow. That is fantastic, Matt. Way to let go. That's fantastic. Yeah.
0: Well, it's come to the part where <laughs> we ask you what your favorite comfort food is, Adam. What is it?
2: <laughs> uh, I've thought a lot about this one. And, um, there's a lot of answers I could give you. Um, but actually when I was a kid, uh, my grandma used to make a really simple dish, rice and lentils, but she would cook the lentils so intensely that they, it was basically just soup. And I remember as a kid, I would put mostly the lentils and a little bit of rice. So it was, it was very, very soupy. Um, and it was the tastiest thing ever. It's hard to describe, but in for those who who know, um, you know who 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 know the languages of of uh, Pakistan and, and India, it's called dal chow, which essentially means rice lentils, uh, mm-hmm. and and it is tasty as heck. I'll tell you. Wow, I you bet know. you s-
0: you smell that, and it probably just brings back memories. It seems like one of yeah. those dishes.
2: I will say a chocolate chip cookie, it comes a close second. Uh,
0: <laughs> and do you, do you, have, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Tam.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, I have that a lot for breakfast.
2: Chocolate chip cookies? No. Oh, rice that's and lentils. <laughs>
1: rice and lentils. Yeah, Delbat.
2: Oh, that's good. Oh, do you, wow, do you,
0: Cool. And you cook them, Tam, or do you just eat them right out of the can uh-huh. like together? You cook uh-huh. them?
2: Oh, that's
1: interesting. No, 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 no. I, I cook lentils and rice and it's just such a good protein and you know, I, I lived in Nepal for quite a while, so it's, oh. it's my
2: yeah, wake up know. and go. Exactly, yeah. That's that's yeah. a common, that's a staple dish uh, in Nepal. That's very interesting. That's a whole other story yeah. I'd like to hear, Tam. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, another time. Well, another time. Adam, thanks so much for coming on Miracle Voices and sharing your miracle voice, and a special thanks to Pablo Arango that uh connected us. Yeah, what a wonderful story and your, your healing and everything you're doing with patience. It's just, it's so nice to hear that um, and the kind of education about death from both of you. So thanks for that.
2: And I hope you have a great rest of the summer. Thanks, Matt. Okay. And thank you, Tim. Really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Same. This is wonderful.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. Please subscribe to Miracle Voices by hitting the subscribe button on your podcast app. If you are enjoying these conversations, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you use. And lastly, please visit us at MiracleVoices.org and join our newsletter so we can stay connected. Until the next podcast, I want to leave you with my favorite course quote, When you want only love, you will see nothing else.